You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Our goal is when a person arrives at our village, and we're getting 60 million people a year, but we want those guests to feel special. All of our villages have apartments, have VIP services, have a host of extra benefits. And it's about defending the soul of the experience and defending the human qualities of the experience. Our footfall and our sales densities have been breaking every record. The fundamental principle is we're creating joy for our guests. That's Scott Malkin, founder and chairman of Value Retail, a company that owns and operates a dozen open-air luxury shopping destinations in Europe and in China. And later this year, we'll open its first U.S. shopping village just outside New York City. Malkin says these retail destinations have among the highest sales per square foot of shopping centers globally. Value Retail's shopping destinations are collectively called the Bister Collection. And I will spell that for you. It's B-I-C-E-S-T-E-R named after Bicester, a town outside of London, where Value Retail in 1995 opened its first shopping destination called Bicester Village. Bicester Village was followed by 10 other villages, including La Vallée Village near Paris, Fidenza Village outside Milan, and two villages in China. And as I mentioned, a New York location called Belmont Park Village is slated to open in September 2024. These shopping villages are designed for the traveling luxury consumer. Scott Malkin recently spoke with McKinsey senior partner Anita Balchandani in London about what's ahead in luxury, fashion, and consumer experience. Here are Anita and Scott. Greetings, Scott. We're meeting at a very interesting point in the development of the luxury landscape. I think over the last few months, we're starting to see some of the headwinds in the luxury sector globally starting to appear. You've been part of the sector over the years You've seen many of the challenges and headwinds, and I'd love your view on an outlook on this specific industry, but also then the role that the Bista Collection plays at this point in time. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to have the chance to speak with you today. The extraordinary creativity and the capacity for reinvention that are the hallmarks of the fashion industry are inspiring. That's what drives everything we do. We are a company comprised of retailers serving retail brands. And our vision has always been to find ways that add value for those brands. The project we built in the late 80s, Tourdeo Drive in Beverly Hills, which is an internal open-air street of boutiques modeled on great European architecture, taught three lessons to me. One was fashion is exciting part of retail. It's where the energy and the opportunities are most obvious. Those who make fashion possible are fundamentally the traveling luxury consumer. She could live across the road or she could live halfway around the world, but she's the one who defines for all other groups what works and why. For our type of focus, she's she's not fashion forward. She's not a fashion victim. She's a long-term brand loyalist who has a vision of a sustainable and evolving wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, if one could create a location that served the brands and that embraced this guest, the traveling luxury consumer, one should hold on to that project and operate it in the tradition of the great 
carriage trade department stores, the Grand Magasin, expecting every year to do better. Because what we've learned as, as tech has disrupted so many things, including physical retail. The reason for physical retail at any touch point today is a flagship experience, presentation of the brand in all of its glory. And it doesn't matter where that takes place. It can be at an airport, it can be in a mono brand boutique, but it's increasingly clear that brands cannot acquire customers affordably online. And the direct-to-consumer model definitively has never made anyone any money. So there has to be this, what you and Ann Pitcher talked about, this omni-channel, all-embracing vision of distribution. That's fine. The part I like, because it adds the most value, is the identification and embrace of the perfect customer or the ideal guest, because we call our, our customers guests. That is fundamentally rooted in something that everyone in fashion recognizes and desires, but doesn't typically execute because it's extremely difficult to do so, which is high-end productive clienteling, black book services, all of the ingredients that provide the perfect counterpart to what is considered success online, which is efficiency. High quality online shopping is about speed, quick delivery, limited friction. It's everything but the part that involves the soul and the human emotions. And as the best brands in the world move towards distributing online, they diminish and commoditize their own product every time they successfully sell an item. And the way to counterbalance that it turns out is the physical embrace and the idea that the magic and the memory of great experiences can balance against, compensate for an anonymous, emotion-free, transactional acquisition of an item that, from a fashion perspective, has a huge margin built in to cover the expense of building a brand, delivering all of the qualities of that item of that particular purchase. But if one were only doing so on the basis of efficiency, that drives to the lowest possible price and that destroys the brands. So I hope we're in the brand preservation business. We are retailers serving retailers and that's what makes it fun every day. Let's go to the core of the luxury traveling consumer, because I think she was at the heart of the start of your story in terms of who we're sort of also looking to serve. Clearly, Travel and tourism have been severely disrupted over the last few years, if you think about COVID and the impact of that. Tourism we see in the traveling consumer in 2024 is probably one of the key growth opportunities as we look ahead. I'd love your take on the traveling consumer, how the nature of your business has evolved to cater to both traveling consumer as well as domestic. And also as part of that, we clearly see that when consumers travel, and they tell us this, they care first and foremost about experiences. They care about retail and they intend to shop retail and luxury, but actually they care about experiences. And you've been actually quite at the forefront of that. And your definition of experiences clearly has been shopping, but it's also been hospitality, hotels. If you look at your broader portfolio, uh, you know, it spans many of these sectors. Talk to us about the traveling consumer and talk to us about that combination of how you bring those experiences to life for them. We think of any of our 
destinations in the Bistro Collection as an oasis, emotional oasis, free of stress. And our goal is that the traveling luxury consumer, whether she's on the road or staying at home, during COVID she was staying at home, our goal is to welcome her in an ever more sophisticated and more satisfying way. And she lives outside of and in every major urban hub in the West. For us in China and Shanghai region, the same thing. We've got two projects there. She's cosmopolitan. She's sophisticated. She's well-informed with high expectations. This woman is highly informed and can never be underestimated. And if one treats her without respect or treats the product of the brand without respect, either one is a death wish. Our goal is when a person arrives at our village and we're getting 60 million people a year, but we want those guests to feel special, personal touch, elements that are different than what they might have seen or received last year with us or what they're seeing and receiving elsewhere in their experiences, not just retail. Around the world, all of our villages have apartments, have VIP services, have a host of extra benefits. And it's about defending the soul of the experience and defending the human qualities of the experience. So in our villages, and we saw this throughout COVID and we saw it this past month, November, our footfall and our sales densities have been breaking every record, but people are happy. Actually, the fundamental principle is we're creating joy for our guests. We don't do that ourselves directly to a very large degree. We do it indirectly through the brands and the way they welcome the guests. And we try in every way we can to support the brands in that vision. So we hire hoteliers whose jobs are to provide hospitality to guests in our environment. So it's essentially a concierge mentality, not a hotel operational mentality. We have teams of visual merchandisers to help the brands make the merchandise sparkle and the experience special. We have proprietary approaches we've set up with Ecole Hospitaliere de Lausanne to work with all of our boutiques to get us to think about what a great experience can be. I can go on and on, but these are just examples. It's time consuming, it's costly, and it's absolutely required. And this notion of black book services and clientele is fascinating because actually we, any of us can tell the difference when something feels special, authentic, personal, not simply a rote recitation of a script. We can deliver that in partnership with the brand. And every brand has a different culture, different identity. So we end up in one of our villages, plus or minus 150 individual boutiques, an open air pedestrianized street. And every single moment should create sparks of interest and opportunity. So for example, from the outset, we banned any music in any of our streets because real streets don't have music piped in. And because every boutique, you want to hear the, the music of that boutique and the message of that opening door, that welcoming voice. And the brands that let the store manager choose the music are insane. And the brands that dictate all of the music from head office in Milan or Paris are also missing the plot. There has to be some midpoint, but it's not a random outcome. The five senses can be addressed in a very intentional way. 
but don't have to be formulaic. So much of the experiences you're describing are kind of actually very rooted in the physical, right, in real life. Where's the role for digital, the power of customer data to unlock and help unlock some of these experiences? AI is exploding and will advance very rapidly. How do you see that dimension and what interplay does it have with uh, the physical experiences that we've just been talking about? Technology is crucial to where physical experience is going, but technology is creating tools to enhance physical experience. It's not replacing traditional methods of delivering physical experience. And every time we think we can delegate execution to technology, we fail. Technology is actually assisting delivery experience. It's not delivering experience. And then you have layers of how technology can be used. So for example, in our boutiques now, we work with the brand so they can sell the current collection full price on iPads. So a woman comes in and says, I'm looking for this. The sales staff, if they know the collection, if they know the product and are well-trained, can say, here are things we have that you might like. And by the way, can I show you these items that are in our full price current collection that could be at your hotel or your house this afternoon and you can send them back if you don't like them. So suddenly they're getting that crossover into full price customer acquisition, but they're also getting the data of that hotel guest or discovering customer. What we're trying to do is make people comfortable and not feel intimidated about discovering new things. And that's hard to do on Bond Street. Yeah, It's hard to do actually at the airport because people are distracted and in a rush. It's easier to do in a more neutral setting. And that's our goal, the 160 boutiques. We're a one floor department store. And yet each brand has its own identity in a standalone space. So it's not a, a merged floor. It's less, in some sense, each brand can create a statement. But I'd love to go deeper into a point that you just made. Most in the industry and indeed consumers might see the collection as an off-price destination. But actually, you've talked about experiences. You also just talked about full price. And I know from our recent sort of conversations that, you know, that element of the business is also growing very rapidly. Talk to us about how you see off-price, full-price coexist in the environment you've created. The idea that we could serve the brands by giving them in a physical form, the chance to dispose of their authentic surplus through a complementary, productive, safe channel of distribution has really been overtaken by our more modern vision of our own business, which today is fundamentally and wholly focused on the identifying of and the introduction of new full-price consumers to the brands. One of the things we introduced during COVID and has been very well received is currencies and bestsellers at full price. And each boutique in the Mr. Collection in our world is invited and encouraged to take 10 or 15% of its floor space and sell not the current collection, but the bestsellers in the current collection at full price. Why? Because that traveling luxury consumer touches a brand only a few times on a journey. Another opportunity is if someone comes and spends six or seven hours with us, which is the normal time spent. And we had last Saturday, we had 43,000 people 
in Vister Village and 28,000 in Ingolstadt Village. And these are big numbers. When they go home around the world, why shouldn't they carry back, having paid full price, that totemic, iconic item that defines the current collection? And go back and say, not, look how much money I saved, but look at these amazing shoes that I found that define the brand. And by the way, I bought all these other things and had a great shopping trip. You know, I've experienced that every time I've gone to Vista Village, there's been something different that su surprises you. How do you think about this constant cycle of reinvention and what's next on the horizon? We're currently enormously committed to this term unreasonable hospitality, which I love because no one can define it. It comes from our friend Will Gadara, who wrote a book called Unreasonable Hospitality about taking 11 Madison Park from a respected brasserie to the number one restaurant in the world over five years. And how did that journey work and why? The notion of unreasonable hospitality starts, of course, facing inwards. You can't have authenticity in the way you greet and embrace and inspire your guests if you treat your colleagues like rubbish. At one point, I had to put a fining system in on rolling eyeballs about, you know, <laughs> because you, you want debate, you want discussion, you don't want people intimidated to put forward an idea. By definition, lots of ideas lead to things that will work but may not be the answer themselves. Never had to use, the fine was gonna to go to charity, everybody stopped rolling their eyeballs so it was all fine, but it's an unconscious pattern behavior. The fun of reinvention attracts people who can deal with the relentlessness of that journey and the stress that comes from waking up every day and saying, I don't know what will happen next. Terms we've used through COVID have been agility and resilience. And I think those are the natural definition of entrepreneurial behavior or responsive behavior. We had a woman from Britain get invited by a friend to go up to Mr. Village and they spent four or five hours in one of the personal shopping suites. And at one point, the woman we know said to the, the woman from the, the Gulf region, who's a princess, shouldn't we go shopping and go out to the village? And, her friend looked at her and said, we are shopping. This is what shopping is. So you have these, all these different ideas, but we can address that. And if a person comes from a particular region geographically, we can provide different kinds of food, different kinds of respect. We're in France or we're in Germany or we're in China. That's true. We're not trying to be Italian in China or German in Italy. But on the other hand, we want to be international. And it's a struggle because people get into their patterns and their comfort zones. And that's why it's so much fun because like the fashion brands themselves, we have to keep up. Every year we ask executives in the industry on their outlook for the next year. So far, every time we've done it, the industry tends to converge very clearly on whether they think the next year is going to be better or worse. This is probably the first time we're seeing jury out, which is roughly a third of the industry sort of divided across. It's going to be better in 2024. It's going to be the same or worse. Where do you come out? Next year will be different. It's one of our points of view is that we, as an organization, always need to be raising the bar. So that guarantees difference. Technology is constantly evolving. That guarantees difference. The behavior of the travel luxury consumer invariably will change. So that guarantees difference. We're definitely past this idea that brands can simply raise their prices and sell more. That moment has moved on. We are living a balancing act between traditional definitions of luxury and 
accessible. Perhaps they would say accessible luxury, but we've seen these flows come and go. Everybody was fascinated to have rappers be their identifiers for their brands, and then they went to something different, and then they moved from one to the next. One of the themes that's enduring, though, is music, the power of music. That's an interesting thing to, to think about because that gets back to the five senses and why do certain things inspire, engage, and sometimes amaze. In the end, a lot of it is just doing the right things consistently. And then when achieving that, being able to go beyond, I'm always so impressed with the spectacular achievements of fashion companies. So Scott, I think you dodged the question on whether 2024 is going to be better or worse, but I think this much is clear for the Bista collection. We can expect to see a lot of new innovations and uh, look forward to seeing some of the exciting progress you make next year. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on mckinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at mckinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on mckinsey.com. Thanks again for listening. 